from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. I'm your host, C.R. Wooters, and I'm happy to be back. 14th and G Global Headquarters here has been going, undergoing a little bit of construction, so apologies for um, taking a small break over the summer. Uh, we're back. We've got a bunch of new episodes coming your way. Um, this is an episode I actually cut a few weeks ago with my, my old friend, Scott Mulhauser. And Scott's a bit of an expert on both communications and also on China. Now, the president has just announced um, the potential of some more China sanctions. Um, the trade war seems to be escalating. Some of what we, we talk about here is a little dated um, in that it was a few weeks ago. Um, but I still thought it would be useful for you to hear um, from somebody who lived in China, who understands how it works there, and may have a different point of view uh, on the U.S.-China relationship. Okay, here we go. Scott Mulhauser. All right, Scott Mulhauser, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you for having me, Sierra Wooders. It's great to be here. All right, so uh, while we're recording this, uh, we'll get into your background, uh, but while we're recording this, earlier today, the president announced more tariffs on China. Um, You are a China expert. Hardly, my friend. (laughs) Well, for the purposes of 14th and G, you are an expert in China. Um, Spent a lot of time there. What do you... uh, what do you think? What's your take on the news from today? And, and, and this is on top of other tariffs that have been going on for the last year or so. I think what you're seeing is a president who is trying to balance the campaign rhetoric of being tough on China with the economy that is currently growing and he likes to see growing under his presidency as, as and coupled with, I think, his desire and the flattery he liked from his trips abroad and his relationship with President Xi. And I think mm-hmm. those lie in direct contrast. And so some days... He enjoys the flattery and he enjoys the the backs and forths. And some days he realizes that he is to continue to talk tough on China and needs to needs to do so. I, I, what I'd say to you is I'm not sure this is the way to be tough on China. I think this is a way to be tough on China that reverberates back on American companies, American exports, American products, and American consumer prices. And I think there are different ways to be tough on China without doing this. Yeah, I think that's probably right. You know, I mean, probably uh, I think a lot of our clients are trying to figure out how to manage their way through this because it's a little bit of an ever-changing world. But, Lark, let's take a step back away from today's news. Um, so you were uh, you lived in the embassy in, in Beijing. I did. Um, what was your job there? Tell How was that? Sure. I was the chief of staff at the embassy, and it was nuts. We had 49 federal agencies and 2,200 people at post. Um, we had five different consulates across China, and it was wild. I mean, I went to more than half of China's provinces, their equivalents of states, over the two-plus years we were there. And I'd spent some time working in and around China on the Center Finance Committee and at the Exim Bank, but it was entirely different to live there. I mean, you just, you had your favorite corner noodle shop, yeah. you had your, but you also had so many people come through town. I mean, not just your sort of C-suites and your yeah. cabinet officials and your members, but, you know, just friends coming through for business or for fun. Or for, it was just, it was an amazing two years. And I think my wife and I will always have that in China, will always be a part of our lives. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So but part of this is what I'd like to get to is, is what's it like um, representing the U.S. in China? Because I think we spend a lot of time thinking about how, 
from Washington or New York or whatever we're dealing with China. But how does it how's it work? Um, and I know, like uh, earlier this week, you were in with the Senate um, talking a little bit about you know how this works. How how do you do business in China? How's it how's it sit from where you are there? Um, give us a little perspective coming this direction. It's pretty special to be there. I mean, you get look, it's hard, right? I mean the the air, the water, um, the regular surveillance state of a, of being with a country with which we don't always have the warmest of relations is 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 isn't there are inherent challenges. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is it was it was amazing. What you can do on the ground there is you can engage in real thought experiments. You can think through and mull and contemplate different ideas. I mean, you have to respond in real time to things that are happening, and you're often the first the first sort of volley over the over the transom. Mm-hmm. And you have to think through, okay, this just happened, whether it was something that happened to an American company, mm-hmm. to an American official, a policy shift. Sure. You're closely coordinating with D.C., but you are doing so amidst millions of Chinese, not just in the city you live, but you, you are on their turf, and you have to sort of be both respectful of of that moment and do so in a way that sort of gets your real yield and real outcome and sticks up for the country you live in and believe in. And how's the, um, you know, we're still at 10,000 feet here, but so how something comes up and a U.S. company or U.S. citizen or something needs needs the help of the embassy, um, what's your interaction like with the Chinese government? Um, how does that work? Sure. I mean, for starters, if any of you are abroad and you were ever in a real pickle, you can call your U.S. embassy, and you can do the equivalent <laughs> of hit zero for operator, yeah. and someone will be there to steer the the ship for you and yeah. help you kind of struggle. But I mean, the the problems were anything from, you know, companies getting raided who mm-hmm. either did or were accused of violating certain Chinese laws, on through you know, citizens getting arrested and everything, and, sure. and they varied from uh, folks here to defect on yep. through. You know, companies just wrestling with the latest Chinese law and regulation. And some of them have advocates. Some of them have teams and staffs and folks on the ground. Mm-hmm. And some of them are small exporters in sure. tiny places across the U.S. just trying to figure out how to do it. And some of them are universities wrestling with a new policy and what to do with it. And a lot of them like to come over and see and touch and taste and sure. feel what's happening. So right. if you're a university or you're a media company or you're a, or you're a, or you're a C-suite and you're trying to figure out how to deal with a new potentially draconian regulation that really affects your bottom line. Sure. Part of it is getting there, and they like to come, and they often start at the embassy and get a sense of, okay, how are other companies being affected without violating, you know, um, confidences. Sure. You get to share how people are thinking through it, what they're thinking, and I think— And a little bit of history, too, I'm sure. Like, these people tried this, these people tried this, this company tried that, this worked, this didn't work, that kind of stuff, I That's assume. right, and I think without, uh, without betraying confidences, you can talk about— where there were real successes. Here's a way to engage. I mean, for example, one of the maxims we like to talk about with China is sort of don't just be in Beijing sort of begging for scraps, but invest yourself and immerse yourself in the rest of the country. And if you are in three or four provinces and you're having some success engaging, all of a sudden you can go to leadership in Beijing and say, see, here's what's working in Shandong. Here's mm-hmm. what's working in, 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 in Guangzhou. And it's working. And I think this is sort of replicable. It's scalable. Or sort of it's working. We don't have any issues. We just wanted to come introduce ourselves. Just like here in the States, you want to get to know your officials sort of before things happen. Right. And so they can. That's the, uh, the old adage of don't go with an ask first, right? Yeah. You know, I do the intro first. That's exactly right. Um, so, so we have a lot of, I have a ton of companies that are doing business. I mean, yeah. Virtually all my, uh, uh, my tech clients, whole, whole bunch of others that do business there. What's it like doing business in China? And, and what was your, 
what's your advice for folks doing business there? And you know, I, if you want to sprinkle in a little bit of, you know, I suspect you've had some CEOs and interesting people yeah. swing by, you know, how'd that go? We had, we did, we had visitors galore. It was sort of fun because everyone wants to promote it. Dwayne Wade unveiled his latest Cabernet over there, so we have to have a <laughs> dinner with Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union while they. But you know, it was it was it was company after company after company, and we went on trade mission after healthcare roadshow after you know energy summit just to try to. And I'd encourage companies to think through the USG resources that are over there, and I'm happy to obviously yep. talk through with any of your clients if it's helpful. But but in specific, there's just there are resources available to American companies over there, whether it's advocacy groups like the American Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Mm-hmm. China Business Council, or or specific sector advocacy in, in tech and transpo and energy and elsewhere. Yep. But also, there, you know, the embassy has energy and commerce and ag and other folks on the ground who do this, who explain and lay out markets and potential partners for companies. And it, it can work. But I think the challenge is sort of American companies finding their niche, finding their lane, yep. making sure they're not sort of threatening China. If you're tech, you, China threatens you a lot more than if you're, say, retail, right? Sure, right. Yeah, exactly. And I think you can see which sectors are struggling, right? I mean, I think you can see which sectors are, are mulling, expanding, and which are, you know, if you're P&G or Pepsi or Coke, you're having maybe an easier time than you are if you're in tech or you're in sure. a media company or you're, um, you know, a host of others. And I think one of, the, one of the things we have found that works most readily is to make clear to China, not just as we talked earlier about how you're sort of spread out within the country, but also that you're in it for China, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are, you're not just there for your bottom line and for your dollars, and you're mm-hmm. not just putting either staff there or, or suppliers there because it's cheaper and more sure. affordable, but because you care about, if you are a tech and travel company, you can be more of a travel company showcasing China to the world. Sure. Right? If you are right. a company that is making and manufacturing that you want to do so because you are proud of Chinese manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. So doing it in a way that you show your investment, whether it's with some CSR and corporate social responsibility pieces, mm-hmm. whether it's investing real in, in, in communities, that stuff matters. And I think they are literally watching closely given the survey yeah. say that it's China, but, <laughs> but they're, they're watching to see how you're approaching China and how you're approaching your work in China. And the more you can tell the Chinese and really show them that you're in it for China and you're not just a foreign company or a foreign entity trying to sort of uh, just land there for the good sure. of your bottom line, it, it works. And it works to the degree that things are malleable. It, it helps. So, you know, the other thing I think that a lot of folks uh, in the U.S. have to deal with is we've got an election every four years for president. And let's say somebody sticks around for eight years. They already have China 2026 plan. They have very long-term plans on what they want to do. Um, and can execute it both because they don't have elections, you know, in the same way we do, but also they, you know, for example, have decided they're going into microchips and uh, storage and other things like that and are spending a ton of money to try to go do that. Um, You know, what's your take on that? Was there there discussions of long-term discussions when you were there from them or – because I feel like a lot of times in the United States, we spend a lot of time talking about next week or tomorrow, yeah. and these guys are talking about decades from now. Well, that's well said. I think it's a great question. I think it's one you can see a laser-like focus on. I mean, all, all the singular focus there is on Chinese Communist Party power preservation. And in doing so, that means a couple things. It means they keep you safe. So that's the security piece, and that's why you see forward-leaning behavior in the South China Sea and elsewhere. But it's also them taking care of you and ensuring economic growth. And mm-hmm. I think there is so much invested in long-term economic growth that it, it it creates odd incentives at times, right? It creates, encourages cheap credit to have you spend $100 on a building that might be worth only 50, 50 bucks mm-hmm. because there is 
there is the RMB to spend and there is the incentive to spend it, right? Where mm-hmm. that may not be in the long term good of the country. It's in the sort of short and medium term for them. So they are singularly focused on growth, on getting more people into the sort of on the grid and into the economy and, and mm-hmm. having their economy grow. You know, some of the techniques are going to be more successful than others. At some point, there will probably be a little bit of a reckoning. Mm-hmm. But they also control so many levers, yeah. so many more than we do. And I think where we lurch from election to election and even midterm to you know every two years, not just every sure. four, yeah. I think the ability to centralize lets them think and forecast longer term and say, okay, whether it's you know a controversial sector that they are particularly focused on, like semiconductors, mm-hmm. or whether it's um, you know a host of spaces they're either not in but want to be. I think they are very cognizant of where they're not, where they need to grow, and what they need to do about it. And I think they're willing to take steps, you know, some of which we like, some of which we don't, and sure. to to get there. And I think you know growing is within their right. Mm-hmm. How they do it, I think. You know, we keep an eye on WTO roles and a host of things, sure. and I think we want them to do the same. So, um, you know, a lot of the legacy companies, companies that have been there for a while, um, often bring up to me um, the non-tariff barriers, the kind of um, the way I translated is, you know, uh, by the way, we have this new rule, and it was interact, you know, and, and we, we, we promulgated it 15 minutes ago, and by the way, your competitors already know about this. Um, how do you deal with non-tariff barriers uh, when you were there, or what's your thoughts on that? And then also, like, how does, you know, a company who probably has been a good corporate citizen over there, and the rules continue to change underneath them? Um, I, I know this happens more in tech than elsewhere, but I suspect it helps happens in a lot of um, different categories. Yeah, when you talk to f- not just American, but sort of just foreign businesses over there generally, what you see, well, you used to see was studies showing that things were progressing, but just not progressing fast enough and not progressing quickly enough. Mm-hmm. Now what you're seeing is American companies invoking terms like reciprocity and yep. invoking terms, you know, just an inherent level of frustration they haven't shown before. And I think some of this is getting ahead of it, as we've talked about, and being there. Mm-hmm. And some of it is this engagement. I mean, on a USG perspective, we spent a lot of time with them on climate on visa validity so we got visas extended mm-hmm. to 10 years and we spent a lot of time on 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 cyber after there's some cyber incursions that yep. obviously they have everyone's personal information <laughs> from um, but we you know particularly focused on cyber incursions for commercial gain where they were using the state to benefit Chinese companies sure. which we felt like was a um, that much more of a line too far so mm-hmm. i mean it, it took the engagement i think if you're these companies having folks there having a smart team in Beijing i mean we saw we saw Honeywell, GE, and a host of others just really succeeding and thriving over there based on sort of a long-term – so a lot of the banks have done it particularly well, too. Sort of, you know, not just not just being there, but being there and digging in. And then what we saw was when there were problems, folks got very good at marshalling the forces, right? They used their advocacy groups. They used their embassy. They used other embassies and so had sort of an international um, community writ large weighing in, mm. right? So the Korean Chamber of Commerce would weigh sure. in, the Germans would. And I think the more voices they heard, sometimes the Chinese would get their back up, but oftentimes they could get a sense of what really was outside the realm of acceptability, and it worked. And I think marshalling the forces when you need to. Sometimes you need to be a U.S. company, and sometimes you need to be a global company that has a presence in China. Sure, and right. making that decision yeah. matters, right? I think when you talk about the jobs that are there, when you talk about how long you've been there, how mm-hmm. many provinces you're in, the Chinese are much more willing to listen than if you, you, know, if you send over your senior leadership for real meetings. That's noticed, and it matters. Sure, sure. Um, what's your take on the ZTE stuff? It's... It's tough, right? Because we've spent a lot of time telling the Chinese we're a, a rule of law country, and yeah. you can't um, commit a foul and an infraction, and then 
trade your way out of it. Yep. And I think that is, you know, issue one. I think also you have to be able to endure some medium-term friction for some longer-term gain. And mm-hmm. this was a company that got caught red-handed. It was a company that had a route back in and, again, sort of flouted the rules and 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 just really didn't take the opportunity they were given to fix the problem. And so then got caught again. Yeah. And given that, I think, between the rule of law issue and what a lot of American companies are seeing over there, I think it was an opportunity. And I think trading it away for a penalty. Sure. Um, if you're going to – whether or not we should have traded it is that rule of law question. But secondly, if you're going to trade it, uh, given some of the reciprocal issues that are happening to American companies, American universities. Sure. I mean, on anything from human rights to – I mean, you pick your topic, but there just is enough out there that is – struggle for foreign entities over there that I think you really could have pushed even harder and got more real substantive embedded longer term you know shifts from them that would have been great to see I mean they yeah. were in a vice and we could have squeezed a little bit the uh, just to give folks perspective um, you know the president has said stuff on ZT and potentially normalizing the the NDAA, uh, National Defense Authorization, is starting to move through the, the House and the Senate with some various degrees of language on on, on where we think on ZTE uh, punishment should be. Um, I think most of our uh, national security folks have said that they are, in fact, a threat, uh, security threat. Um, oh, I probably should have said that before I asked the question, well, <laughs> assuming people just as, uh, knew what ZTE was. I mean, I'll say this to you. that The Chinese respect strength and they respect and they recognize leverage. And particularly after the president was elected, between his tough campaign rhetoric, his call with Tsai Ing-wen from Taiwan, mm-hmm. his meeting with, with Abe from Japan, and then a host of other things onward from ZT onward. These are moments where you can use them to extricate sure. promises and commitments from the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And every time you don't do that, it's an opportunity yeah. lost. What's your take on TPP? Um, you know, um, the president obviously ran on, uh, I don't want to be a part of TPP. I think a lot of the globe um, felt like uh, TPP was a way to kind of marshal forces, as you were, I'm, I'm stealing some of your language, uh, around China. Uh, now TPP moves forward without a U.S. presence in it. Um, I suspect it was actually in probably a big part of your life when you were there. What's your take on that? And, and um, you know, I, not really in a partisan way, but kind of, you know, where would that have taken us and where would where does it leave us now? Well, it sounded like, this was, I mean, the countries that have moved forward without it are doing so. They also concede it would be a stronger and more binding and more powerful and impressive an agreement if we were a part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you hear the president vacillating and thinking about it, even though I suspect he knows it's not what his base wants him to say and he ultimately won't come around, right? Yeah. But I think the idea was for a lot of these countries, they saw overcapacity in steel and cement and so many other things, and they saw so much happening where China was starting to set rules of the road, and they said, if we band together, our market is bigger and stronger, and this can be the baseline. Mm-hmm. And I think there was progress toward that. You saw TPA pass, and you mm-hmm. saw the sort of the assumption was that, that this was coming next. And obviously, trade is more controversial than ever, but there were strong binding environmental labor and other provisions within the agreement. So sure. no matter where you stand on trade, if you care about those things, they inherently become stronger in a bunch of other countries that that could use a little bolstering because of TPP. So sure. no matter if you were sort of pro or con TPP, there were pieces of that puzzle from the left with the labor and the environmental standards yeah. and from the right with sort of market setting and rules and norms that I think showed 
pieces of the puzzle that I suspect President Trump wishes he had at times, and I suspect a lot of companies do too. Yeah, I think that uh, my my interpretation from the folks that I that I deal with is that's the case, um, and, and generally more rules of the road and more agreements for businesses make things easier to try to figure out. It's interesting. It feels like China kind of like dips their toe in democracy, dips their toe in uh, maybe not democracy. They they dip their toe in uh, in Western economics. They dip their toe in uh, capitalism. Um, but they don't fully go in. Um, did, was that your sense too, or am I kind of just reading that from here? Well, I think they play the long game well. And I think mm-hmm. the sense of, the if you go back to the it all being about Communist Party power preservation, mm-hmm. right? They don't want another Tiananmen uprising. They don't want an Arab Spring, and that's sort of what keeps them up at night, right? Sure. So given that, they sort of you have to allow enough breads and circuses to let the citizenry sort of enjoy themselves, sure. right? And if that means iPhones and it means or Xiaomi phones and, and mm-hmm. you know, both, I guess. But if it means sort of allowing for consumption in certain things that that give enough of a realm of their citizenry being, being happy and not in a sort of traditional communist party that you and I grew up yeah. thinking about, right? I think they've had to meld with the times, but what they're doing is they're doing that, giving a little bit of rope to let people sort of let their citizenry have fun. And Yeah. What's the... Um uh, you know, there's obviously a growing middle class in China now, um, but are they the same? Is it the same as us? I feel like our middle class are big consumers. Our big middle class are, you know, kind of two kids in a picket fence in a house and new flat screen TVs and stuff. Or is that how they operate? Or not? Or not really? You see them growing so quickly, right? I mean, the the median incomes have jumped so quickly that you just watch them learn how to do the things that a lot of us have grown up doing so sure. readily. I mean, travel is new for them, right? Mm-hmm. There's a phenomenal book by Evan Osnos, the New Yorker correspondent, called Age of Ambition. And it's a real nice view into online dating in China and sort of <laughs> constra- and hospitals. And sort of, but you watch them. I mean, we had a good friend who runs the biggest hospital chain in Beijing, in China, excuse me. And yeah. She started in Beijing and said to the Chinese, let me try Western medical care on a co- I'll only treat my friends. And huh. the Chinese said, this will never work. And eight hospitals and 20 clinics later, she's doing fine. Wow. Right? I mean, it is, you can, they want, not all, but enough of what we want, which is a sure. comfortable life. And there is an adage for having your own apartment or house and a car and a job that sort of, you know, conveys your, uh, your sort of, there's a gravitas and a, and a stature that comes with that, as I think it implicitly does in a lot of other places. And I think... It may be a different life. They certainly have suburban communities like we have. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, I think people want to be sort of happy and successful. And I think the Chinese are wrestling with and trying to come up with and ultimately coming up with ways to let their economy grow, preserve the Communist Party as they see it, but sure. also let their citizenry get sort of richer and happier. And, and it's not working for everybody. And I think they're moving more and more people to the cities, but they're terrified about sort of cities overrunning the entire country. And no one, you know, they want to move people on the grid. They want to move, they want to continue to grow GDP. Yeah. But they want to do it in a way that sustains. And right. I think that's where the credit shock and there's this inherent tension between reform and control. And sure. They don't, and they don't, I mean, when we were there, there was this documentary called Under the Dome, and it was about what the climate, mm-hmm. how it was affecting Chinese citizens, right? And it was the first time any of them had known because their media censored about their air and their water, what was happening to them. Mm-hmm. Well, so 10 million people saw it online, and then 20, and then 50, and then 100. And then between 200 and 300 million people saw it. And it was the Chinese admitting, it hasn't been phenomenal, but we're working on it. And right. the government was involved in it. And at some point after two to 300 million people saw it, they pulled it offline and they were terrified about what it could mean. And you could see embedded within that the tension between their reform and their desire to sort of grow and 
and and acknowledge issues and their desire to just have control and prevent uprising and, and control everything. Right, right. It's an interesting uh, uh, dynamic, that control versus uh, kind of um, showing a little bit of effort mm. is probably an interesting balance for them. How do you put North Korea in this? As we tape in this thing, the president just got back this week from uh, his uh, jaunt to, to Singapore to talk to, uh, for the first time ever, to talk to the leader of North Korea, um, depending on who you ask, it was either like the greatest meeting in the world or like a nothing burger. But either way, it was a pretty big deal. I mean, you know, it's never happened before. Um, and I give the credit president a lot of credit for, for, for making that happen. Um, how's How do the Chinese view that? I think if you're the Chinese, you are thrilled at the promise of fewer military drills between the U.S., South Korea, and other allies. Yep. I think that is a great thing because that is a regional balance that is largely – thought to be countering China's military naval presence in particular. And I think that is notable and a great thing for them. But I think also a North Korea that is allied with the U.S. probably scares them a little bit because mm-hmm. um, North Korea's always been, if not in their pocket, certainly something that... Close ally. Yeah, close <laughs> ally with, you know, as their economy struggles and the Chinese are sure. the only funders. So it matters a lot. So, you know, knowing that a country that close could fall prey to American thoughts and values. I mean, there is such a fear of not just America, but sort of Chinese, Japanese and other um, mm. other countries' values somehow fomenting unrest slash sure. that I think they just want to make sure they are controlling what's happening and they are on top of it and North Korea stays loyal and friendly to them. And that's why you're seeing a bunch of news stories centering on the fact and President Trump even intimating that China may not always be the most helpful partner here because there's some value for them in the current setup. Sure, sure. I mean, as North Korea's citizenry struggles, it's a different conversation, but it's it's there is value to them in knowing what they have in North Korea, and the unknown scares them more than anything writ large, and in this case in specific. Oh, interesting. Um, all right, so, um, you know, I, I kind of skipped past your background here. Um, you've worked for Bryce President Biden, obviously, you uh, had the XM Bank, um, which went through a little bit of tumult for a while. Uh, and uh, and then you went over to China. Um, what are you doing now? So I have um, I've come back after a couple great years in Beijing and uh, came back for a fellowship at Georgetown. Go Hoyas. Um, <laughs> and, uh, How'd and you like teaching? It was wonderful. So much so that they've kindly asked me to continue. So Michael Steele, my Republican counterpart, during my fellowship and I teach – a class on Congress, a class on campaigns still at the public policy school because mm-hmm. we've had so much fun and, and have loved it. I went to law school at Georgetown and grew up here as you did. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's home and love that campus and, um, and I'm thrilled to do it. So I came back for that. And alongside it, what's come has been a bunch of consulting, particularly on the China and, and international realm. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, all the years on the Senate Finance Committee were a lot of trade and tax and health work, too. And so it's really turned into a nice mix of sort of. Um, China and Asia and sort of helping folks think through how to approach being over there, what to do, pratfalls, opportunities, and the whole thing. And then alongside it, just a lot of years in communications have come, yeah. um, you know, particularly in the health tax and trade space, but a bunch of communications work, and it's been great. And I think it's it's getting bigger and better, and I'm enjoying it, and it's been easy, and it's been fun, and it's grown pretty organically that I think, uh, yeah, I'm in the throes of launching a new firm, Aperture Strategies. It's, All right, uh, Aperture Strategies. Get excited, team. What's your uh, What's your website? AperturesStrat.com. Aperture Strat. Okay, 
so I always ask a you know kind of uh, a little bit of wacky question toward <laughs> the end here. And normally I ask things like, you know, who do you want to have coffee with in Washington? But because you spent so much time in China, um, what was the coolest thing you did in China? The coolest thing we did in China, the last trip we took, mm-hmm. we went to Inner Mongolia. We stayed in a gear, which was their version of the yurt, and we just saw a different side of China that we'd never seen. Mm-hmm. And we'd been all the way down to Yunnan, which is sort of where Southeast Asia meets China, and the food has sort of a lemongrass flavor that you mm-hmm. sort of associate with Thai or Vietnamese food, and it was wonderful, right? Mm-hmm. And we'd been you know, up north, and we'd been to, but it was just such a different part of China, and it was so special. I mean, we had visitors galore, right? I mean, from the president to CEO after a cabinet member, after um, you know, member of Congress, we got to go to Tibet with Pelosi, and we got to go to Xinjiang with Mike Lee, Steve Daines, and, a, and a, um, a Shelley Moore Capito, and Jason Chaffetz, and a bunch of I mean, the travel and the moments were spectacular. There were just these unique moments time and again where you got to see and, you know, see and, and experience real things happening. When we got Alongside my own personal experiences, when we got real things done, right? When we sort of sure. saw the climate deal guys, when we saw, you know, the time, the number of times I hear from from execs and from students that the value of the visa going from five to ten years, right? You felt like if you really engage, and this is sort of my big fundamental takeaway in dealing mm-hmm. with China, which is engagement, right? And sort of the more you are talking to them, talking with them, working with them, immersed in the country, and they are immersed in your energies. Yep. The more openings there are. I mean, I've been talking to universities and dealing with universities that are sort of trying to figure out what their presence should be like over there. And all that engagement can have real yield. And we saw it on cyber, and we saw it on climate, and we saw it on visas. And you can really make – so I sort of – in a moment where the countries are sort of shouting back and forth at each other. Sure. The more we send – I believe they're back tweeting and, back and that's forth. Fair, right, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> or we chatting, depending yes, on exactly, your country. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think the value of that engagement just can't be understated. And watching – you know, the number of cyber incursions for a commercial gain go way down, as reported by mm-hmm. a host of independent entities. Um, watching, you know, for at least for that moment, sort of the, the climate deal that has, you've seen China's cities and, chi- and China's provinces, the, the air is better. And it's demonstrably better. And that took, you know, several years of work and back sure. and forth. And it started with putting an air monitor on the roof of the embassy so they got a sense of what the air they were breathing was. And they didn't love that we did it. But it ended, it ended with them working with us on a pretty big climate deal. And hopefully we will again hold up our end of the bargain. But you can engage and there is value in engagement. And I think it yielded some personally fun moments for me and special moments. But it also yielded real takeaways for us as a country, us as an embassy, and, and and us as a government that I think benefit the folks in both countries, and I think that was pretty special. Um, all right, I'll wrap it up there. Scott Mullhauser, thanks for joining us on 14th and G. C.R. Wooders, thanks for having me. I want to thank Scott for coming into 14th and G. He's the best. Check out his new firm. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next time at the intersection of business and policy right here at 14th and Gene.